Welcome to The Life of James Rennick, a historical sketch of his life, labors, and martyrdom, and a vindication of his character and testimony by Thomas Houston, D.D. Originally, this life was written as an introduction to, quote, The Letters of Rennick, unquote, published by Alex Gardner, Taisley, 1865. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. Quote, as the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read? Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of The Life of James Reddick. A Historical Sketch of His Life, Labors, and Martyrdom, and A Vindication of His Character and Testimony by Thomas Houston, D.D. Originally, this life was written as an introduction to, quote, The Letters of Rennick, published by Alex Gardner, Paisley, 1865, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him, John 14:6. Historical Introduction The prophet's message to Eli, quote, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel said, Them that honor me, I will honor, unquote. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, declares a fundamental law of the divine government, which the history alike of individuals and communities has illustrated in all bypassed ages. The works of many men of eminent talent and remarkable energy admired in their own day, having speedily passed into oblivion or have been productive of a few permanently salutary results. Despising God, quote, they have been lightly esteemed, unquote. Those, on the other hand, who honored God and were devoted to his service, however humble their talents or position in society, however contemned and persecuted by the world, have been honored of God. Their labors have been accepted to advance his glory in the earth. Their memories have continued long fragrant, and their principles and character have furnished the most valuable instruction and the brightest examples to future generations. Of this we have a striking instance in James Rennick, the last and in various respects the most illustrious of the Scottish martyrs of the 17th century, hated and persecuted in his own day by the men in authority in church and state, calumniated and reproached by ministers and others who professed evangelical sentiments and affected piety, and his principles generally misrepresented and condemned even to our own day, there is yet abundant evidence to show that the master whom he faithfully served and for whose cause he willingly surrendered his life singularly owned and honored him. His faithful contendings and arduous labors contributed not a little to subvert the throne of a bigot and tyrant and to achieve the nation's liberties. 
They served also to secure the purity and independence of the Church and to transmit a legacy of imperishable principles to future times when, quote, the handful of corn, unquote, upon the top of the mountains, quote, shall shake with fruit like Lebanon, unquote, scant and fragmentary, as are the memorials of Rennick clothed in most homely garb and written with no artistic skill. They have yet been the means of nurturing vital piety in many a humble breast and household. In these and other countries, from the martyr era to our own day, and not a few of the most devoted ministers who have earnestly contended for precious truth and been wise to win souls to Christ, have received from the record of the labors and sufferings and testimony of Rennick some of their first solemn impressions for good and propelling motives to holy diligence and self-devotion, as the story of Joseph in the Old Testament has been remarkably blessed above other parts of the divine word for promoting the conversion and early piety of the young so unadorned narrative of the life, labors, and death of the youthful Scottish martyr has led not a few to prefer the cause and reproach of Christ to the world's favor to imbibe his spirit and to imitate him in seeking ends the most important and glorious. Rennick's work in the church is not yet fully accomplished, nor is the influence of his name losing its attractive power. On the contrary, there is evidence increasing as it is cheering that while the one is drawing to it more earnest regard and willing workers, the other is constantly becoming more powerful and widespread. Let any person compare the manner in which the later Scottish martyrs, Rennick and the society people were spoken of in the histories, civil and ecclesiastical, emitted in these countries forty or fifty years ago with the altered tone of historians of a recent date, and he will see that posterity is beginning to do tardy justice to the memories of men of whom, quote, the world was not worthy, unquote, who were the noblest, most disinterested patriots of which their country could ever boast, and whose services to the cause of pure and undefined religion were invaluable. Occasionally, we yet find, in the works of some popular writers, Rennick and his fellow sufferers designated enthusiasts and fanatics, their principles misrepresented, and some of their most heroic deeds held up to ridicule and scorn. Even the brilliant Macaulay, while exposing to deserved condemnation their cruel and heartless persecutors, and while depicting with graphic power some of the incidents of the deaths of the Scottish martyrs, yet shows his strong aversion to evangelical principle and godly practice. By applying to the honest confessors the same opprobrious epithets, the age in which the martyrs and their principles were kept entombed, by heaping on them reproach and slander, is past, however, not to return again. Their names are destined not to perish. God designs in his providence to honor them more and more by bringing more clearly to light the great principles for which they contended unto blood, striving against sin, the era long predicted and desired is approaching, when the saints shall rise to reign with Christ on the earth, when the spirit which distinguished them shall be extensively revived, and the great principles of their testimony shall be triumphant. Meanwhile, the resurrection of the names of the confessors and martyrs of a former age is a sure indication of the resurrection of their principles too. 
through the evidence furnished by the faithful contendings and devoted lives of men of sanctified wisdom and high-toned piety and the light reflected from the story of their sufferings and triumphant deaths. We cannot doubt that numbers will be led to earnest inquiry concerning the principles for which they testified in life and in confirmation of which they willingly laid down their lives that they might transmit the precious heritage to future generations. The result will be a wider appreciation of the value and excellency of a martyr testimony and in the period of promised light and enlargement the lifting up of a standard in many places and by strong hands in behalf of the same great principles as prefatory to the memorials of the piety, wisdom, and devotedness of the martyr Rennick. It appears desirable to present a brief sketch of his personal history to notice the particular time in which he labored and the principles for which he contended, his martyrdom, character, and the distinct and honorable position assigned him in the great work of maintaining and advancing the Redeemer's cause in the earth. Rennick's Life <clears throat> James Rennick was the child of godly parents in humble life. His father, Andrew Rennick, was a weaver, and his mother, Elizabeth Corson, is especially mentioned, like the mother and grandmother of Timothy, or like Monica, the mother of Augustine, as a woman of strong faith and eminently prayerful. As several of her children had died in infancy, she earnestly sought that the Lord would give her a child who would not only be an heir of glory, but who might live to serve God in his generation. Her prayer was heard and graciously answered. The son of her vows was born at Menave, in the parish of Glencairn, Galloway Shire, on the 15th of February, 1662. His father died before he reached the age of 14, but not before he felt assured, probably from observing in the boy remarkable indications of early piety, that though his course on earth would be short, the Lord would make singular use of him in his service. The early training of this distinguished martyr was, in a great measure, through the instrumentality of a devoted mother who could boast of no worldly affluence or accomplishments, but whose heart was richly pervaded by the grace of the Spirit and intensely concerned for the Savior's glory, and who, in times of great difficulty and great trial, maintained unwavering confidence in the faithful word of promise. If James Rennick was not, quote, sanctified from the womb, unquote, there was clear evidence afforded that, in early childhood, he was the subject of gracious motions of the Spirit. At two years of age, he was observed to be aiming at secret prayer, and as his childhood advanced, he advanced love to the ways of God by reading and pondering the scriptures, delight in secret prayer, and by reverential regard to the authority of his parents. Like Luther and other eminent servants of God, Rennick was trained for his life work in the school of temptation. He experienced painful mental conflicts and the assaults of the temper, tempter. At a very early period, it is recorded that at six years of age he was conscious of distressing doubts in relation to the divine existence and perfections. These exercised and agitated his mind for a period of two years in answer to prayer and by meditation on the power and goodness of God as seen in creation. 
He overcame the temptation and attained to internal composure and tranquility. At a time of life considerably subsequent, when he had reached mature youth and had acquired extensive acquaintance with scriptural truth, a like temptation assailed him. Temptation again assailed him. He himself relates that he fell into deeper perplexity and distress about these fundamental truths. Like the excellent Robert Bruce of the First Reformation, he was strongly tempted to atheism. So powerful at one time was the assault that being in the fields and looking to the distant mountains, he exclaimed, quote, Were all these devouring furnaces of burning brimstone, he would be content to go through them if he could thereby be assured of the existence of God, unquote. There was at length made for him a way of escape from this severe temptation, and not only did he attain to a full and joyful persuasion of God's existence, but to the assurance of his personal interest in God as his covenant portion. James Rennick was endowed with a vigorous, reflective mind, and from his childhood he was devoted to reading and study. Amidst considerable difficulties, he commenced and prosecuted with ardor studies for the ministry. There is ample evidence from his writings that his attainments and learning were by no means superficial. Through the kindness of friends raised up in Providence, he was enabled to pursue classical studies in Edinburgh, and while attending the university there, he maintained himself till he had finished the undergraduate course, partly by teaching and aiding others in their studies. When his scholarship entitled him to a university degree, he refused to receive this honor because it was required at the time that students, on graduating, should swear the oath of allegiance, which expressly owned the royal supremacy. In company with two fellow students, he sometime after received his degree privately. Continuing in Edinburgh to prosecute his studies, he was brought to attend the private fellowship meetings of the persecuted covenanters. He met with the outed ministers and was led to study by the light of the divine word and the teaching of the spirit, the exciting and deeply important questions of the day. Thus did he become convinced of the numerous defections from the principles and ends of the covenanted reformation of the majority of the ministers and Presbyterian people of Scotland, and he was persuaded that the stricter covenanters, the followers of Cargyle and Cameron, and those associated in societies and who frequented conventicles, alone consistently carried out the grand principles and aims of the national vows. At length, after much searching of heart and according to his words, testifying to his deep consciousness, quote, with great grief, reluctance, and trembling of soul, unquote, he became identified with the persecuted remnant. Soon after, while yet only 19 years of age, Rennick witnessed the martyrdom of the venerable servant of Christ, Donald Cargyle. He stood near the scaffold, beheld his courageous and triumphant departure to glory, and heard the clear and powerful last words in which he nobly testified for the crown rights of the Redeemer and against Erastian usurpation. Quote, As to the causes of my suffering, unquote, said the dying martyr, quote, The chief is not acknowledging the present authority as it is established in the Supremacy and Explanatory Act. This is the magistracy I have resisted that which is invested with Christ's power, 
seeing that power taken from Christ, which is his glory, and made the essential of an earthly crown, it seemed to me as if one were wearing my husband's garments after he had killed him. There is no distinction we can make that can free the acknowledger from being a partaker of this sacrilegious robbing of God, and it is but to cheat our consciences to acknowledge the civil power alone, that it is of the essence of the crown, and seeing they are so express, we ought to be plain, for otherwise we deny our testimony and consent that Christ be robbed of his glory. These mighty utterances, so solemnly confirmed by the martyr's blood, could not fail to make a deep impression on the heart of the youthful Reddick. His purpose was fixed and his resolution taken to maintain the same great principles, and reproach and persecution and death could not turn him aside. His Christian decision had its reward. He declared that he did not fully know what the gracious presence of God with his people meant till he joined the fellowship of the persecuted remnant. A large measure of the spirit of the, quote, faithful cargo, unquote, rested on his youthful successor. And when, some two years after he entered on the work of the ministry, it was justly said, quote, he took up the covenanted banner as it fell from the hands of Cargo. At the time that Rennick united with the society people, they were destitute of a public ministry. Cargill and Cameron had sealed their testimony with their blood. The churches were either filled with Episcopal curates or by time-serving Presbyterian ministers who had accepted the indulgence flowing from the royal supremacy. By an act of Parliament passed in 1672 against, quote, unlawful ordinations, unquote, the way to the ministry was barred against all who could not accept prelatical ordination. The societies, having organized a general correspondence, earnestly desired a stated ministry, while they manifested the strictest regard to scriptural order. Animated by a noble public spirit, they selected James Rennick and two other young men and sent them to complete their studies for the ministry in Holland, then renowned for its theological seminaries, where deep sympathy was manifested for the suffering Church of Scotland. He studied at the University of Groningen, where some of the most distinguished theologians in Europe occupied professional chairs, studying in the spirit of entire devotedness and actuated by an earnest desire to return to Scotland where there was pressing need for faithful ministerial services. He made such proficiency that in a short time he was fully qualified to receive ordination. According to the usage of the Dutch church, he was ordained at Groningen by a classis or presbytery of learned and godly ministers who evinced their Catholic spirit by yielding to his request to allow him to subscribe the standards of the Church of Scotland instead of their own formula. There was remarkable evidence of God's gracious presence being enjoyed in the solemn service. It has been appropriately said that as the conflicts of the German Reformation were acted over by Luther in his cloister before he was called to his public work, so the struggles of the covenanted cause in Scotland were first engaged in by Rennick in his retirement and solitary chamber in Groningen. There he clearly foresaw 
the conflicts and trials that awaited him and in near communion with God, he yielded himself up as an entire self-sacrifice, anticipating the blessed recompense of the reward. In the early pagan persecutions, the church was sometimes symbolically represented by an ox with a plow on the one side and an altar on the other, with the inscription, quote, ready for either, unquote, prepared for work or slaughter. Such was the spirit of Rennick as he looked forward to the work that lay before him in his native land. In a letter written from Holland at this time, he says, quote, My longings and earnest desire to be in that land and with the pleasant remnant are very great. I cannot tell what may be in it, but I hope the Lord hath either some work to work or else is minded presently to call for a testimony at my hand. If he give me frame and furniture, I desire to welcome either of them." Rennick returned from Holland in the autumn of 1683. Escaping some dangers at sea, he visited Dublin, where he bore a faithful testimony against the silence of ministers in the public cause, and left behind him a favorable impression on the minds of some of his Christian zeal and devotedness. In September 1683, he landed in Scotland, and on the 3rd of November, he entered on his arduous work of preaching the gospel in the fields and lifting up the standard of a covenanted testimony. He preached on that day at Darmid in the parish of Cambuchnefen. From that time till he closed his glorious career and won the martyr's crown, he preached with eminent fidelity and great power the glorious gospel of the grace of God. His public labors were continued for a period of nearly five years and extended to many districts in the east, south, and west of Scotland. In remote glens, unfrequented moorlands, often in the night season and amid storm and tempest, when the men of blood could not venture out of their lairs to pursue the work of destruction, he displayed a standard for truth and eagerly labored to win souls to Christ. His last sermon was preached at uh, Barostonus, from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 on January 29, 1688. Though he ever testified boldly against the defections of the times, especially the indulgence, and insisted on disowning the papist James as not being a constitutional monarch and on maintaining fully Presbyterian order and discipline, and all the covenanted attainments, his discourses were eminently evangelical. His darling thing, themes were salvation through Christ, and the great matters of practical godliness. With wonderful enlargement and attractive sweetness, he unfolded the covenant of grace, the matchless person and love of Christ, the finished atonement and its sufficiency for advancing the glory of the Godhead and for the complete salvation of elect sinners. Considering Rennick's youth being but 19 years of age when he entered on his great work, He was endowed with singular qualifications as a preacher of the gospel. These remarkably fitted him for the great work to which he was called, promoting the Redeemer's glory, in awakening and converting sinners, and in edifying and comforting the church in a season of suffering and trial. He was, moreover, gifted with personal talents, natural and acquired, that rendered him an attractive and powerful preacher of the gospel. His aspect was solemn and engaging. His personal appearance, even when harassed by incessant labors and privations, night wanderings and hairbreadth escapes from enemies, was sweet and prepossessing. His manner in preaching was lucid and affecting. His whole heart was thrown into his discourses. 
He often rose to the height of the most moving eloquence and with the constant reality of God's presence and love and the dread realities of persecution and violent death and eternity before him he poured out his soul in such strains of heavenly enlargement that his hearers were melted, subdued, and raised above the fear of death and the terror of enemies. The following account of Rennick's manner of preaching and of the impressions made on his hearers is taken from an unpublished manuscript of Ebenezer Nesbitt, son of Captain Nesbitt of Hardhill, and may be regarded as descriptive of the way in which he proclaimed the gospel to the, quote, flock in the wilderness, unquote, during his brief but singularly efficient ministry. Need we wonder, after reading this narrative, at the spiritual effects of his preaching to thousands in his day, and at the precious fruits that resulted from his labors long afterwards, and the sweet savor of his name throughout the subsequent times. Quote, the latter end of this year, I heard that great man of God, Mr. James Rennick, preach on Song chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, when he treated greatly on the covenant of redemption agreed on between God the Father and God the Son in favor of the elect, as also on the covenant of grace established with believers in Christ, oh, this was a great and sweet day of the gospel, for he handled and pressed the privileges of the covenant of grace with seraphic enlargement to the great edification of the hearers. Sweet and charming were the offers which he made of Christ to all sorts of sinners. There was one thing that day that was very remarkable to me, for though it was rain from morning to night, and so wet as if, we had been drenched in water, yet not one of us fell sick. And though there was a tent fixed for him, he would not go into it, but stood without in the rain and preached, which example had a great influence on the people to patience, when they saw his sympathy with them. And though he was the only minister that kept closest to his text, and had the best method for the judgment and memory of any that ever I heard, yet now... When he preached, the people crowded close together. Because of the rain, he digressed a little and said with a pleasant, melting voice, quote, My dear friends, be not disturbed because of the rain. For to have a covenant interest in Christ, the true Solomon, and in the benefits of his blessed purchase, is well worth the enduring of all temporal, elementary storms that can fall on us. And this Solomon, who is here pointed at, endured a far other kind of storm for his people. Even a storm of unmixed wrath and oh, what would poor damned reprobates in hell give for this day's offer of sweet and lovely Christ? And oh, how welcome would our suffering friends in prison and banishment make this day's offer of Christ? And for my own part, said he, as the Lord will keep me, I shall bear my equal share in this reign and sympathy with you. And he returned to his sweet subject again and offered us grace and reconciliation with God through Christ by his Spirit. Quote, Words would fail me to express my own frame and the frame of many others. Only this I may say. We would have been glad to have endured any kind of death, to have been home at the uninterrupted enjoyment of that glorious Redeemer who was so lively and clearly offered to us that day. Quote, he was the only man that I ever knew that had an unstained integrity. He was a lively and faithful minister of Christ and a worthy Christian, 
such as none who were acquainted with him could say any other but this, that he was a beloved Jedediah of the Lord. I never knew a man more richly endowed with grace, more equal in his temper, more equal in his spiritual frame, and more equal in walk and conversation. When I speak of him as a man, none more lovely in features, none more prudent, none more brave and heroic in spirit, and yet none more meek, none more humane and condescending. He was every way so rational, as well as religious, that there was reason to think that the powers of his reason were as much strengthened and sanctified as any man's I ever heard of. When I speak of him as a Christian, none more meek and yet none more prudently bold against those who were bold to sin, none more frequent and fervent in religion's duties, such as prayer, converse, meditation, self-examination, preaching, prefacing, lecturing, baptizing, and catechizing, none more methodical in teaching and instructing, accompanied with a sweet, charming eloquence in holding forth Christ as the only remedy for lost sinners, none more hated of the world, and yet none more strengthened and upheld by the everlasting arms of Jehovah to be steadfast and abound in the way of the Lord to the death. Wherefore he might be justly called, quote, Antipas, unquote, Christ's faithful martyr, and as I lived then to know him to be so of a truth, so, by the good hand of God, I yet live thirty-six years after him, to testify that no man upon just grounds had anything to lay to his charge. When all the critical and straightening circumstances of that period are well considered, save that he was liable to natural and sinful infirmities, as all men are when in this life, and yet he was as little guilty in this way as any I ever knew or heard of, he was the liveliest and most engaging preacher to close with Christ of any I ever heard. His converse was pious, prudent, and meek, his reasoning and debating was the same, carrying almost with it full evidence of the truth of what he asserted, and for steadfastness in the way of the Lord few came his length. He learned the truth and counted the cost, and so sealed it with his blood. Of all men that ever I knew, I would be in the least danger of committing a hyperfall when speaking in his commendation. And yet I speak not this to praise men, but for the glory and honor of God in Christ, who makes men to differ so much from others, and in some periods of the church more than others. The, quote, lectures and sermons, unquote, of James Rennick that remain were published from the notes taken at the time of their delivery by some of his attached hearers and followers. They were not prepared with any view to future publication, and the trying circumstances in which their devoted author was placed wholly prevented any correction or revisal, yet they contain not only remarkably clear expositions of the word and a full exhibition of the scheme of salvation, but also many passages which, for searching application to the conscience and moving eloquence, are unsurpassed in the discourses of eminent preachers either in ancient or modern times. As specimens of the matter of Rennick's discourses delivered in the conventicles, in the fields, amidst all dangers and incidents of weather, and by night as well as day, the following are selected from the published reports of his hearers. In a discourse on Psalm, chapter 1, verse 7, quote, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, unquote. 
He thus earnestly pleads, quote, Love him, and you shall not come short of the enjoyment of him hereafter. It is true, faith is that which, as an instrument, apprehends Christ and engrafts us in him, yet it worketh by love, and love accompanieth faith. As the sunbeams do the sun, oh, what shall I say? Love him, love him. Ye cannot bestow your love so well. Turn others to the door, and take in this beloved. Here I make offer of him unto you. Here I present him unto you. Lift up your heads, O ye doors, that the King of glory may come in. I present a glorious conqueror this night to be your guest. O cast ye open the two foldings of the door of your hearts, to wit that ye may receive him. Cast ye open the hearty consent of faith and love, that he may take up his abode with you. Oh, what say ye to it, friends? Will ye close with Christ? I obtest you by his own excellency, I obtest you by the joys of heaven and the torments of hell, that you close with him. All of you come, whatever you have been or are, none of you shall be cast out. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely." Unquote. Quote, Seeing it is the duty of people to set their love upon Christ, I exhort you to give some testimonies of love. Think ye that ye love him? Will ye then show that? I would expostulate for some testimonies of your love. When Peter confessed that he loved Christ, our Lord desires him to show that by feeding his lambs and sheep. It is true, you cannot show your love that way, for ye are not called to that office, but ye ought to show it in the way that is competent to you in your stations. So as I was saying before, I expostulate with you for some testimonies of your love. Quote, Make a free and full resignation of yourselves and your all to Christ, that ye may say with the spouse, I am my beloved. Oh, ye should not prig, higgle, with him about anything. Some prig with him about their hearts, and will have a part thereof in their darling idols, which they cannot think to quit. Some prig with him about their time, and will make religion but their bywork. If their worldly employments be thronged, they will neglect the worship in their families and prayer in secret. Others, if they keep any family worship, it is in the evening, ordinarily they are impatient, and haste to an end in it, and neglect it in the morning altogether. Oh, what a sad prigging is this! Some prig with him about their relations. They will not quit these when he calls them to suffer for his sake, but will tempt them or will insinuate upon them to comply and deny his cause. Some prig with him about their possessions, and yielding to this or that iniquity, will keep their houses and lands, they will not quit them. And some will prig with him about their lives, and if the swearing of a sinful oath, the subscribing to iniquitous bond, or denying of his cause, will save their lives, they will not lose them. Oh, what sad prigging is this! Oh, be ashamed of it. Will ye lay all at his feet and count it your honor and joy that he dispose of the same as he pleaseth? Give this testimony of your love to Christ. Rejoice in him when present and keep his room empty when absent. I say rejoice in him when present. I need not press you much to do this, for in his presence there is great joy, though the enjoyment of him here be imperfect, yet it brings exceeding gladness with it. Therefore saith the psalmist, quote, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than when corn and wine are increased, unquote. But when he is absent, see that ye keep his room empty for him. When he sees it meet, 
at any time for your correction, trial, and instruction to withdraw himself or hide his face, then idols or other lovers will readily present themselves and seek to possess his room. But be chaste and true to your beloved, as the spouse who, in his absence, could not be contented, but used all means and diligence until she found him." Unquote. In a sermon on Song 5, verse 16, quote, His mouth is so, I mean, excuse me, His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, unquote. The following affecting views are presented, quote, The second property of Christ's love is that it is a strong love which appears from what he hath done for sinners, he has done great things for sinners. He took upon himself all the sinless infirmities of human nature, not sinful nature. Yea, he endured a shameful and lingering death besides a flood of wrath that he waded through, such a flood of wrath as would have drowned all the sons and daughters of Adam to all eternity. Thus, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. Greater love hath no man than this, that he, a man lay down his life for his friends. Oh, my friends, if ye will follow Christ through all the steps of his humiliation, ye may see that the love of Christ is strong love, which makes him endure such things for sinners. He gives great things to sinners, whereby he shows the strength of his love to them, for he gives grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. For he saith, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Christ gives the believer union with himself and communion in glory with the Father. Even a share of that glory which the Father giveth him, he giveth them. <clears throat> he gives them a crown of righteousness which shall never fade away, and he gives them to drink of the rivers of his pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore. O oh, my friends, Christ doth not prig with his spouse. He will keep nothing back from them that he sees to be for her profit. Oh, but his love is strong. He requires no more for all that he has done and all that he hath given, but that he see, but that he see the travail of his soul. He will think but little of all that he hath done. If we will but accept of his love and lay our love upon him, yea, so may be said of him, as was said of Jacob, the seven years that he served for Rachel seemed but a few days, for the love that he bare unto her. His love is so strong, that although thou shouldest run away from him never so fast, yet his love will overtake thee and bring thee back again. Paul ran very fast in opposition to his love when he was going to Damascus to persecute the church. But Christ's love overtook him suddenly. Manasseh ran very fast from Christ when he made the streets of Jerusalem to run with innocent blood and set up an abomination in the house of God and used witchcraft, and yet Christ's love overtook him and brought him back again from the pit. If thou art one of those that the Father hath given to the Son, though thou shouldest run to the brink of hell, he will bring thee back again from thence. Quote, Christ's love is pure and sincere love, Herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us, unquote. not for any advantage that he can have by us, for he is infinite in all perfections without us. Therefore we can neither enrich him nor add any more glory to him. We may well magnify his power, 
That is all we can do, and all the advantage is our own. Christ's love is not a base love. He loves us not for his good or advantage, but for our real good and advantage. It is pure and sincere love for all the advantage is ours. Quote, Christ's love is an enriching love. For those upon whom his love is bestowed are no more poor. How can they be poor who have Christ for their riches? For, saith the apostle, all things are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If ye have this love bestowed on you, then all other things are made to serve for your good, ye shall lack nothing. Quote, Christ's love is a free love. He gives his love freely, without any reward, and so it is free love, the offer offer is alike to all. If ye will but take it off his hand, he makes open proclamation of it to you all, saying, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, O my friends. All other love is infinitely beneath this. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took the seed of Abraham. O my friends, God hath made us the center of his love, and therefore I beseech you, do not despise his love. He came not to redeem any of the fallen angels, but the seed of Abraham." Unquote. In the following moving terms, he pleads with his hearers to accept of Christ and his salvation, quote, Your eternal enjoyment of God will be your element, which ye shall forever delight in, and this shall be to praise and admire his love, for I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive the things that the Lord hath prepared for them that love him. O oh, then, sirs, what think ye of Christ? Will ye not at this time say he is your beloved and your friend? O oh, give your consent to become his friends, and accept of him as your friend. I leave this offer at your door. He is willing to befriend you. If you will come into an estate of friendship with him, come, come, and take his offer off his hand. Say not that ye have continued so long in sin that ye know not if he will befriend you now. For if ye will come to him, he will yet befriend you. Therefore, for the Lord's sake, put not away such an offer, but take it in the present time. For ye know not if ever ye shall have an offer again. If ye will not take his offer off his hand this day, I will be a witness against you in the great day of judgment, that this day the Son of Righteousness offered himself to be your friend, and ye have made light of the offer. Yea, the hills and mountains about us shall be witnesses that ye had Christ in your offer such a day, in such a place. Therefore, my dear friends, say now that he is your beloved and that he is your friend." Unquote. His close dealing with the conscience and his solemn warnings and exhortations are exemplified in the following passages. Quote, Consider your own condition without Christ. Ye are lost and undone, limbs of Satan, children of wrath, hell to be your dwelling place, and devils and damned souls to be your company eternally, and where sin shall be your eternal torment. This is your condition without Christ. What think ye of eternal exclusion from the presence and comfort of God? What think ye of hell, where there is nothing but utter darkness, weeping and wailing forevermore, to be your dwelling place? What think ye of devils, to be your continual company? And what think ye of sin, to be your continual life, always blaspheming the glorious name of God? And what think ye of your final condition, to be in continual torment, always weeping and gnashing your teeth? 
All this, I say, is abiding you who will not embrace Jesus Christ, whatever your profession be. For believe me, a profession will not save you from this eternal misery if you receive not Jesus Christ. Whatever your sufferings be here, yet ye shall suffer this hereafter if ye receive not Jesus Christ. My heart bleeds for many sufferers in Scotland who shall suffer everlasting torment in hell because they will not receive and embrace Jesus Christ, this gracious and free Savior who is now in your offer. O oh, embrace Jesus Christ, otherwise be ye who ye will and do what ye will. God's justice shall pursue you, and he shall have war against you without cessation. There shall be no discharge in that war. The great warriors of the earth are all lying with their weapons broken under their heads. But here is a war that hath no end. You who will not receive Jesus Christ, you will see that ye have made an evil choice when ye pass through the dark gates of hell to the inner chambers thereof to move you. Further consider that if ye will take him, ye shall have him and all his. Ye shall drink of the waters of life. Your feet shall stand on the sea of glass before the throne. Ye shall have his name and bear his image and wear a crown of pure gold upon your heads and follow the Lamb with palms in your hands, saying, Hallelujah, and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Ye shall have the fine white linen garments of Christ's righteousness to wear in heaven, in clothing eternally. Ye shall have the glorious cloud of witness, witnesses, angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect for your continual company, and ye shall have a life of love and joy everlasting with him that is altogether lovely. Oh, then come and take Jesus Christ. Would you make a happy choice? Then take him and embrace him, old and young, man and woman, lad and lass. Now Christ is in your offer, and you are all invited to come to him. And now I charge you all, as ye respect the glory of God, and as ye desire this happy condition that I have spoken of to you, slight not this offer. Now the golden chain of salvation is let down to you. Grip, grip it fast, before it is taken up again. Go not away, fools, lest ye never be at such a market day again. Quote, what shall I say to persuade you? Let the excellency and glory of his great name do it. Be entreated to accept of Christ in this present offer. Here I obtest you by what he hath purchased for sinners and by what he hath suffered. Come and embrace him. I obtest you by the blood he shed on the cross. I obtest you by the great drops of blood he shed in the garden and by all the joys that are above the clouds in heaven that ye put not this offer away. I obtest you by all the torments of hell that ye put not this offer away. I obtest you by the glory of heaven and by the crowns which believers put on his head that ye slight not this offer. Quote, Here I take every man and woman to witness against one another that ye had Christ in your offer, and I shall be a witness against all of you that have not received Christ this night. Yea, though he should never be glorified in such a, a sort, sort by me, yet I will be a witness against you. Here before the throne of grace I declare in his name that I have made an offer of him unto you, and therefore your blood shall be upon your own heads if ye perish, and I shall be free of the same. In another place he presses with like earnestness acceptance of the gospel offer, quote, If ye would be rightly concerned, ye must at once come and be a right son or daughter of the church and member of Jesus Christ. Until then, 
Ye cannot have a fellow feeling of the body. Come then, and Christ will give you a fellow feeling with the sufferings of the church. Come and embrace himself, and he will set the stamp of natural children upon you. Without him ye can do nothing. Without him ye cannot be concerned with the sufferings of his name and members. Refuse not. Reject not his offers when he calls you to himself. It is hard to say if some of you shall have an offer again. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. He is now spreading his net. And will yet, and will ye not come about the net's mouth, that a catch of you may be gotten? He is proclaiming unto you that he hath invincible power, though managed by apparent weakness. Oh, find you any of this irresistible power of Christ? Oh, come unto him, who is the joy of heaven, and it shall be a joyful time in heaven. He will have a good report of you through heaven. If ye shall have it to say that some poor lad or lass hath put a crown upon his head in such a place. But oh, how sad will it be if Christ shall have it to say, I gave offer of myself to a people like stocks and stones, but they would not hear." Unquote. On the duty of devoting the best to God's service, in another discourse, he thus forcibly reasons, quote, Observe that it cannot but be a great injury against God and procure a curse when people employ not their best things in his service. This is clear from the words, Cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrifice unto the, sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Unquote. So men that employ not their best things in the Lord's service, believe it, they are chargeable with this. He calls for your best things in his service, and not that you should spend that upon your lusts. Ye are called to employ the best of your time in his service, and many of you give him but the refuse of your time, or at least he gets but your by-time for his service. But ye should give him the best of your time and strength and your hearts. All should be employed in his service. Do not say that you do the best that you can, for I am persuaded that there is none of you but may do more for him than you do. Do not say that ye improve the talent that he hath given you to trade with, for ye but misimprove it. And the best of you, we fear, come short of improving it. If ye improve it, ye should find it increase upon your hand, and ye you would appear like his children. But because people do not improve their time and abilities to lay them out for God, it procures a curse. For though our obligations go far beyond our duties that we do, Yet when we do not lay out all our abilities for him, and do not bestow our love, our affections, and our time, and all that we have for Christ, but bestow them upon other things, we procure his curse. Young folks, set to the work, and be entreated to give up yourselves to his service, and employ your best things for him. Now when your desires are fast and quick, oh, will you bestow them on precious Christ? You have a brave prize put in your hand. If you set a right to the work, ye may see Zion's king come back and the crown set upon his head again. Unquote. Urging the necessity of being found within the kingdom of God, he says, quote, Seeing that the gate is very straight and narrow that leads to the kingdom of heaven, then what 
shall become of many of you that never came the length that hypocrites have come. Oh, what will you ye say, and how will ye meet with God? When he comes to count with you for a preached gospel, what will ye think of a mediator that was offered to you, whom ye slighted and despised, when the heaven and earth shall melt away? And great men and mean men shall howl and cry, and all the tribes of the earth shall wail because of him. Oh, this will be the portion of hypocrites from God. Quote, it is of use for trial for all of you to try yourselves and ponder in your hearts and say, O oh soul, whether art thou in the kingdom of heaven or not? Oh, be exhorted to this, whatever be thy state, O man and woman, it is safe for thee to search thy state. If matters be right betwixt God and thy soul, it will be thy peace. If not, thou mayest possibly get righted. For my part, I count him the best Christian that is most accurate in this searching and communing with his own heart. For if ye neglect this, ye may come to lose the sight of your interest in Christ, if ever ye had it. Do not satisfy yourselves with being near the kingdom of God, but go into it. For this end, break the bargain and peace with your lusts and idols, and make up your peace with God through Christ, our peacemaker, and ye shall find great advantage in the exchange. For the wicked have peace, but with sin and sinful men, but the godly have peace with God. Oh, will ye quit all other things, and seek to be interested in him? For it is to be feared that many here have proclaimed peace with sin, and some idol or other. Oh, break the bargain, and make peace with Christ. Make choice of him, for he can give you that which no other lover can give you. Oh, break that peace with your lusts and idols, and make peace with him. Remember, he offers himself to you freely this day. Choose, therefore, what ye will do. O oh, seek for the fullness of the Spirit of Christ, and rest upon nothing but upon himself alone, and seek to be in the kingdom of God by the thorough work of conversion upon your souls. Quote, and now to all that are in the kingdom, I proclaim peace in the name of God. Whatever troubles they are under here, so enter into the kingdom through Christ only, for that is the way to do it. But as for you who will not come to him and enter into the kingdom through Christ only, who is the way to it? But as for you who will not come to him and enter into the kingdom through Christ only, who is the way to it? I do, in like manner, proclaim war with that soul from God. Whatever ye be in profession, O friends, lay it to heart, and choose you whether it be better to have heaven's peace and the devil and the world's feud, or to have the devil and the world's peace and feud with God forever. And now to him who is purchaser of true peace be glory and praise forever. Amen. Unquote. When it is understood that the discourses from which these extracts are taken were preached in the open air and often in the nighttime, amidst the exposure both of the preacher and the hearers to all changes of the weather, not unfrequently in rain and tempest, and that the sermons and lectures that bear Rennick's name were not prepared in a quiet study in peaceful times, but in the midst of frequent removings, incessant labors, and manifold dangers, and that they are transmitted to us from the imperfect notes and recollections of attached hearers, themselves the objects of fierce persecution, they cannot fail to impress us with a vivid idea 
of the remarkable power and fidelity as a preacher of the youthful martyr and to account at the same time for the popularity and salutary effects of his preaching. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more. At great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, quote, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee, unquote. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, quote, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you, unquote.